It is great to be with you tonight. I know uh, a good many of you quite well, and uh, I appreciate this opportunity every time that it's given to me uh, to speak to you. Um, I have uh, had a whirlwind this afternoon. I, I decided since I was going to take off at Morrison a good little bit over the next few weeks, I would try to uh, fit in a sermon at Morrison since our services are at five. And, uh, and so I, let's see, let me go back to yesterday. Yesterday I preached at Smart. And they assigned me repentance and confession as my topic in one sermon. So I put two sermons together. Okay? I got through repentance. I was supposed to be done at 10.50. At 10.42, I got done with repentance. And I had a whole sermon on confession to do. And I told them, let's see if I can do one sermon in eight minutes. I did. Okay? There were a couple members from Morrison, and I said, now this is our secret, that I can preach a sermon in eight minutes. (laughs) Morrison should not know that. Well, this evening, I have to preach an abbreviated, or we have to sort of have an abbreviated service so that I could be here. They may have sang for an hour after I left, I don't know, but the service before me and then my sermon was slightly abbreviated, and uh, I preached maybe a 20-minute sermon. So it's developing sort of a, a habit here of really short sermons that I've got to try to break. I cannot have that be the norm, um, so uh, maybe we can break that tonight. That wasn't a very enthusiastic <laughs> response. So this series, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, is on uh, Proverbs eighteen twenty one, death and life, or in the power of the tongue. So we're talking about the tongue, our words, and the things that we say. And uh, my topic, as the first one, is James chapter three, and I'm going to treat this as sort of an introductory. Uh, sermon for the rest of the lessons. I, I perused the topics that were coming after mine, and many of them were much more specific than mine. And so I thought, well, rather than delve into some of the specifics, let's uh, let's do a, a general study of the tongue. And really what we're going to do is, is deal with it uh, uh, textually from James chapter 3. And so you can go ahead this evening and you can open your Bibles to James chapter 3, and we're going to talk about taming the tongue. And again, what we're going to talk about, the things will be quite general uh, in terms of how we use the tongue and some of the things that come about as a result of that. Uh, We're really going to do two things tonight. Number one, we're going to talk about the importance of taming the tongue. And then number two, we're going to talk about some challenges that come when we try to tame the tongue. So uh, the first thing we'll do is talk about the importance, but... I want to remind you what it means to tame something. It means to to domesticate, rather, to make less powerful and easier to control. So we're talking about making our tongues easier to control. We're talking about controlling our words, dealing with this great power that exists in the words that we use. Now, taming things is easier said than done. And really, that's what James 3 is all about. How easy is it to tame the tongue? He's going to tell us. Um, uh, Just a a story by way of illustration, Siegfried and Roy made a living, a very good living for years as a resident act in Las Vegas. And one of the things that they would do is they would uh, have these tame tigers. Um, Except one time, and, and the story goes that Roy had become a little lax in his older age and was not working with the animals as he should have, did not have the comfort level with them that he should have, And it was a special service, a special show that he was undertaking. And so he wanted to use a special tiger, a special certain animal 
And he didn't have a rapport with that animal as he should. And he changed the routine midway through the, 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 the show. And long story short, what happened is that animal attacked him. And he was severely injured. To the point that after that, he had trouble walking and talking. He, they had to retire the show. You see, that animal was supposedly tame. It's very difficult to tame an animal like that. And really, you never know whether that animal is fully tame or not. You see, that's how it's going to be when we talk about taming the tongue. We're going, to we're going to begin by talking about the importance of taming the tongue. We're going to talk about two things. Number one, the power of our words. Why is it so important to tame the tongue? Because our words have power. Go to James chapter 3 and verse 1, and I want you to look with me. He says, My brethren, be not many masters or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, it, it's interesting the play between the you and the we, the pronoun shift in James 3 and verse 1. He says, now you don't be many teachers. Don't, don't strive to take on that role of responsibility because we, that is the ones who are already teaching, we shall be judged with greater responsibility. We shall receive the greater condemnation. Uh, one literal translation that I read translated it this way, stop becoming many teachers. The issue, very likely, as James is writing James chapter 3 by inspiration, is that you had people who were, were assuming roles of leadership or roles of instruction who weren't prepared for those roles. And so what they were doing is they were saying things that weren't right. And their words were causing more harm than they were causing good. And so James begins right off the bat by reminding folks, look, our words have power. And that is one of the most important things that you and I need to understand. Our words have power. Well, what type of power do they have? Number one, they have communicative power. One of my favorite passages to illustrate this point is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. Paul says, For what knoweth, what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? You know what he's saying there? I can't know what you're thinking, not really unless you tell me. Husbands come home after a long day at work, maybe your wife has gotten off work too, and uh, I hear that men are a lot of a certain number of words a day, and women are too, and men use all of theirs up at work. <laughs> and so they get home. They don't want to say anything. They want to sit down. They want to relax, maybe, or they want to go and do different things. The one thing they don't want to do often is talk about their day. But the wife says, hey, honey, how's your day? Fine. Well, she wants you to expound. She wants you to elaborate. Why? Because she's interested in you. And by you using words, what you're doing is revealing yourself to her. And that's what she wants you to do. You see, the only way to bridge the gap from one person to another, really and truly, is through words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, what Paul is saying here is exactly that, only as it relates to God. He says God has revealed them to us before he mentions this in chapter 2 and verse 11. The point is, the only way that we would know what God expects out of us is if he revealed it to us. And he chose the means to reveal his thoughts to us, and it's words, the word of God. If you are going to reveal yourself to others, that really the, the main way to do that, and the only truly effective way to do that, is through words. Words have communicative 
power. Think about the things that we communicate with our words. We communicate thoughts and ideas. If you're going to talk to somebody about the gospel, you're going to use words. If somebody's going to obey the gospel, it's going to be because they heard words whereby they and all their house might be saved, as was the case with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. You see, we recognize words have power to communicate thoughts and ideas. So we need to be careful, and it's important how we use our words because our words communicate our thoughts and ideas. If I say something, people are going to assume that that's what I think. And so I need to be careful the words that I use because they have power to communicate thoughts. Number two, they have power to communicate facts and information. And some of us are better at, at communicating those things than others. You ever talk to somebody and they're trying to explain something and you just get more lost the farther they try to explain it? It's like if Mike had tried to explain the inner workings of, of the technological things he does on a daily basis to most of us. He would be speaking Greek, a language that we didn't understand. And the more he tried to explain it, the less, very likely, that we would understand because there's a chasm there between his thoughts, his facts, his knowledge, and our ability to understand it. See, but words can bridge that gap if we use them properly. Did you know words can uh, express attitudes and moods? What you say and how you say it communicates what you're feeling inside. And words have so much power and it's important that we handle our words properly because they communicate our attitudes and our moods, but they also communicate our interests and our intention. Sadly, and we go back to husbands and wives, there are times when I'm sitting and I'm in, engrossed in something or maybe I'm engrossed in absolutely nothing and my wife is talking. And I say, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, sure, uh-huh, yeah. What did I just say? I really don't know. Um, and you see this, and it comes into even sharper focus when you have children, and your children do that. You say, I want you to do one, two, three, and four, and they run up the stairs ready to do what you said, and then they run back down, and they said, I got to one. What's two, three, and four? You see, I, the way that we communicate and the words that we use indicate how interested we are in what's going on. The mm-hmm and the yes indicate a lack of interest. My dad wouldn't allow me to respond to him in that way. You see, because it communicated our interest and our intention. We need to recognize that the words that we use have communicative power. The power to communicate what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we need to communicate to others. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6, there's a passage that I am certain you will see again in the course of this summer series. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. The word answer there means to speak when speaking is something that's expected of you. There are times when you are expected to say something. And it is vitally important that you know what to say and that you know how to say it. As Christians, the way people view and the way people judge us and our faithfulness to God might in some ways only be gauged by the things that we say and how we say those things. It's no wonder then that when we are commanded to give an answer to those that asketh us a reason and the hope that is in us, we're supposed to do it how? With meekness and fear. 
Because when we communicate our thoughts and ideas, our facts and information, our moods and attitudes, our interests and our intentions, how we do it and what we do are vitally important. So important. Number two, our words have constructive power. And I kept constructive up there because that's the C, but I could have just as easily put destructive power. Proverbs 18.21, the theme for this whole summer series, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Dear friends, you have the power to destroy people by the things you say. And you have the power to lift up and edify people by the things that you say. And what a grave responsibility that is. Again, James 3.1, don't let many be teachers. Why? Because we shall receive the greater condemnation because we have a responsibility to communicate with words. And we have the potential to destroy or to build up. I'm sure you will see Ephesians 4.29 again in the course of this summer series. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. Literally building up as fits the occasion. That it may minister grace unto the hearers. One of the big challenges is to know what to say in certain situations. Someone loses someone they love. And I know that Tony and I and other preachers are put in a situation like that all of the time. In, in, in horrifying situations. What do you say? Well, what I've learned is that sometimes you don't say anything at all. Because even trying to say something that you believe to be positive can have horrific results. I know many of you are familiar with... Uh, Don Blackwell and the events that, that transpired in his life. And, and you know, he is dealing with a, a, a grave burden now physically and emotionally and, and perhaps even spiritually and, and relationally that he's going to have to endure probably for the rest of his life. Don't read the Facebook comments on some of the posts that are put. People mean well. But some of the things that they say, unsolicited advice given to a man who is struggling to move. We don't know that what we're saying sometimes has the exact opposite effect that we intend. We need to know what to say and how to say it. I'm going to do a series at, at Morrison on Job. And one of those sermons in the series is about his three friends. And eventually Job got so fed up with the encouragement that his three friends gave that he said, miserable comforters are you all. You're here to comfort me and you're doing a horrible job at it. What they meant to be constructive was destructive instead. And we need to recognize that our words not only have the power to communicate what we're thinking and feeling, what, what the facts and the information we want to get across, but our words have the potential to destroy or to build up. Now you're going to hear sermons as this series progresses on things like gossip, foul language, lying, all of these types of things. Remember what I said tonight. Your words, my words, have the power to destroy. And they have the power to build up. So, the power of our words. But number two, let's think about the potential of our words. Why is it that we should tame our tongues? Why should we strive so much to do it? Number one, because of the power of our words. Number two, because of the potential that our words possess. Go back to our text in James chapter 3. I want you to pick up in verse 2. 
He says, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect or complete man and is able to bridle the whole body. He then gives two illustrations. Verse 3, illustration number 1. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Let's look a little more deeply at those two illustrations. Number one, he says bridles. What do bridles do? They control horses. I was at Short Mountain Bible Camp this week. You might be able to hear it in my voice. 18, 12 to 14 year old boys. And you try to get them to go to bed at the right time, to, to all shower and, and brush their teeth, which is amazingly difficult to get 12 to 14 year old boys to do. And to just generally get them to walk in line. So my voice has suffered. Well, one of the things that many of those kids love to do at Short Mountain Bible Camp is ride horses. Many of you probably love to ride horses and, and to care for horses, and I applaud you. I have not gotten my mind around strapping myself to an animal much larger and more powerful than I am. I've just not, not gotten my mind around that. But many people love it, and that's great. Well, what's interesting about those who are so good with horses is their ability to control that animal, that large, powerful animal, with small pieces of equipment, such as the bridle, that you put in a horse's mouth and you can control where it goes and how it goes, how fast it goes, the speed with which it goes, all based on that small piece of equipment. Have you ever thought just how powerful the animal is that you're controlling with that small piece of equipment? The other example that he gives is of a ship. And, he, and the, King James uses, the King James Version uses the word helm or a rudder. That small flap that controls, it says, our text in James chapter 3 and verse 4, they're turned about with the, the ships, verse 4, that be so great are driven of fierce winds, yet they're turned about with a very small helm. Those great ships, that's the same word used in Acts 27 about a ship that contained 276 people. He's not talking about a John boat, you know, with a, with a trolling motor on the back. He's talking about a pretty good-sized ship controlled with a really small piece of equipment. You say, what's the point of all of this? What, what's, what's he trying to get at? What he's saying is words are powerful. And the potential that is wrapped up in words to destroy not only the people that hear them, but the people who use them, that is certainly sobering. It's interesting, as I was studying this text, there's this phrase in verse number 4. The King James says, Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, wherever the governor listeth. I looked at six or seven various translations of this passage. Nearly every one of them left out one word in the original language. That's not translated. It's the word impulse. And the idea is... The impulse of the pilot directs where he tells the ship to go. It's not saying that the governor or the, the, the person in charge of the ship is the one who controls it. It says the impulse of that guy does it. See, here's the danger of words. If we stop being in control of our words, our words will still come out. Only they'll come out based on impulse. 
And so often the difficulty that you and I have with words isn't the words that we think of beforehand, the words that we ponder on, the words that we really shape with thought and intention. It's those words that just come out. Those words of impulse. The time when you lash out at someone without thinking. The time that you say something without really intending to say it the way that you said it or to say the thing that you said. When you repeat something and the moment you repeat it, you say, I should not have said that. You see, those are the kinds of words that really do us damage. Words of impulse. The words that didn't really come out with thought and intent behind them. You see, our words have the potential to control us. Think about it. My tongue, such a small part of my entire body, and yet just like that rudder and just like that bridle, it has the power to control me. To control the path of my life. To control the nature of my relationships. To control how I am perceived as a husband, as a father, as a minister, as whatever role you may play. Our words have the power to control us. And that ought certainly to be a sobering thought. I have preached before this passage. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Notice what it says. This has a laser on it, right? This isn't the exploding button or anything. Okay. It's a new... Why would they... Over 25 years of these little contraptions, they've put the up arrow as the advance and the bottom arrow, the, the down arrow, as the go backwards. And this one decided to switch it. And so Tony hands it to me and says, by the way, the buttons are backwards. Okay? So I don't trust any of the buttons on this thing. This might be the trap door. Anyway, notice, every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. How frightening is that? Those words that just come out by impulse that we don't really think about before we say. Those words that we didn't even really stop to ponder before they came out. The words that, that we just throw away every day. We will see all of those words again. That's what this is telling us. Now just, just stop and pause and think about how sobering a thought that is. So why is taming the tongue so important? Number one, because of the power of words the power that they have over other people, and number two, the potential that they have to control us. Well, then our big point number two this evening. It's challenging to tame the tongue. It's hard to do. Mr. Roy of Siegfried and Roy can tell you just how challenging it is to tame a wild beast. But what our text is going to tell us in just a moment is that it is even harder to tame the tongue. I want you to pick up the end of verse 5. He said in verse 5, and you've already noticed, even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things, behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among, among our members, and defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. He says, I want you to think about the exponential nature 
of words. I don't know if you go camping or not. We love to go camping. And I don't care how hot it is, we need a campfire when we go camping. It is just a necessary part of camping. And so when we, when we go camping, we have our campfire. And I learned as a, as a young man that the first thing you need to do is get some kindling. Now, you can take the shortcut. I wrote an article about this the other day, and I mentioned this. You can, you can douse it with lighter fluid. But you better be careful how much you use and how close in proximity you stand when you go to light that fire. I have literally known people whose eyebrows were reshaped by lighting that kindling. But you see, if you can get a good start to a fire with some kindling, you can build any kind of fire you want. I, we bought a house three or four years ago, and it came with a, a shop. And in that shop was a wood-burning stove. I was so excited. It took me three days to figure out how to start a fire in a wood-burning stove. I'd never had to do it. Some of you maybe grew up doing it, but I'd, I'd never really done it. So I had to figure out how to do it and how to keep it going. You see, once you get that start, as long as you keep adding fire, it'll just grow and grow and grow. You see, that's what James writes in, in James chapter 3. He says, just like that kindling starts the fire and then every piece of, of wood you throw on it just adds to that fire and before long it's just growing. That's what words have the potential to do. Why is it so hard to control words? Because it only takes one, one, to start a fire. One word incorrectly placed, incorrectly stated, can cause great fires. And that's the, the passage up there that we just read. Let me give you two practical things to consider when you think about that. Number one, I want you to really, really focus on the power that every word has. Every single word. I challenge you to measure your words better. And Mama said, when I point a finger, there's four back at me, right? Really, there's three. The, 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 the thumb can go all kinds of weird directions. But every time that I tell somebody else that, I need to remember I can do that too. I challenge you to measure every word. Every word you tell your children. Every word you tell your spouse. Every word you tell the, the, the lady at the drive-thru or the checkout counter. Every word matters. But then let me turn that around. I challenge us. Be ready to give grace. Do you know people who are just waiting for you to say something wrong? As a preacher, I've, I've run into folks, and I'm sure they mean well, but... I mean, you say the slightest little thing, and I want you to tell me if I preach something that's not right. I absolutely do. I've put Moses in the ark before, and I want you to tell me that Moses doesn't belong in the ark. That's Noah, okay? I I've done those kinds of things before. But some people are just laying in wait, waiting for you to say something wrong, and their, their, their heart is on their sleeve, and they're waiting. Can, they, can I twist their words to make it sound like they said something to offend me? Please, can they do that? Now, every word already has enough power. Let's not inject it with even more. Now, let's not be so quick to be offended. We live in a culture that is just looking to be offended. Every little thing offends somebody. Let's take a step back and let's be ready to give a little grace when it comes to the words that we use among each other. Because words have enough power as it is anyway. We need to recognize the exponential power and nature of words. But number two, 
recognize the exceptional nature of words. I want you to notice what he says as we continue in verses 7 and 8 of James chapter 3. He says, For every kind of beast, birds, serpents, things in the sea, is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. But then notice verse 8. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. It's interesting, in the sermons that I've preached over the last few days, I've, I've run in unintentionally to several phrases sort of like this. For instance, I preached and I used Hebrews 6, 4-6 through 6 this morning. It says, it is impossible. You know, very rarely does the Bible say something is impossible. Tonight, in that short sermon at Morrison, I mentioned Matthew 6, 22-24. You cannot serve God and man. Very rarely are there things said that you cannot accomplish. But I want you to look at this. James says nearly every beast that you can imagine has been tamed. We went out west and we went to a zoo. I can't even remember now where it was, but we watched snake handlers. And these snakes crawling up and around their bodies, wrapping themselves around their arms, poisonous snakes an arm's length, length away. We watched... Uh, uh, the alligator wrestlers, okay? Get in there with seven or eight or ten of them. And he's just hanging out with them. And he messes with them a little bit and he, he tells us how to sit on them and how to grab them so that they can't do this or that. And I'm like, man, there is no way that you could pay me. And he's a college kid. This kid is 19 years old and they're wrestling with alligators. Nearly every animal that God has ever created has the potential to be tamed. We recognize that wild beasts, it's a, it's, a, it's a hit or miss proposition, but at least there's the potential. But then he says, by inspiration, the tongue can no man tame. And then he says something else that adds to it. It's an unruly evil. Literally, it cannot be held back. You cannot completely tame the tongue. Now you say, don't tell me what I can't do. Well, I didn't. That's God. You can't completely do it. Why is it so dangerous? Why is it such a challenge? Because it's an exceptional thing in this world. We can tame everything, but we can't tame our tongue. I think there are people maybe who believe they're the exception to the rule. Well, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. But be careful. Be careful. I'm reminded of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 which says if we say that we have no sin, that is sin and potential. The potential ability to sin, we deceive ourselves. You see, if I convince myself that I'm the only one in the world who can tame my tongue, well, I am treading on dangerous ground because it is exceptional in the sense that it cannot completely be tamed. One more point this evening and this sermon will be yours. The final challenge that James mentions relative to the tongue. If you'll go back with me to our text and pick up in verse 9, he says this, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, fig? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh 
Let me make this statement, and I want everybody to understand this statement. Our words are the single greatest instrument of hypocrisy that we possess. Our words are our tongue. We create more hypocrites by the words that we say than anything else in our lives. And that's what James just told us. He says, I want you to understand that we use the same God that we just sang hymns with, or the same mouth that we just sang hymns to God with. We use that same mouth to go and say filthy things to other people. And he says the hypocrisy of that is just astounding. With our mouths we get up and we condemn the big sins. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, drunkenness, all you name them and we condemn them. What about these? The ones that you're going to hear about over the course of the next few weeks. What about things like gossip and backbiting? What about wrath and malice and the anger that we communicate with our words? What about using foul language, using the Lord's name in vain? What about lying and so on and so forth? How many people who would consider themselves faithful to God use their tongues for things that do not glorify Him in the least. That's a sobering thought. I can stand in this pulpit and I can preach against all nature of sin, and yet I can go out and this untamed part of me can say something that can destroy my reputation and hurt my example and my influence. We need to recognize the erratic nature of the words that we use. So often, we are not consistent in the words that we use and the life that we claim to live. I began this sermon by saying I meant it to be an introductory sermon. To introduce us to the topic that the rest of this summer series is going to address more in depth. Taming the tongue. I want you to remember, and I want to remember as we leave this evening, death and life exist in the power of the tongue. Death and life of those around us with whom we come in contact every day. And our own death and our own life spiritually are bound up in the power of our tongues. This evening, how are you using your tongue? Let's think for a moment about Praising God with our tongue. You know, if one is to be a Christian, he is to believe in Christ. John 3.16, he is to repent of his sins and he is to confess with his mouth that Jesus is the Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch did that in Acts chapter 8 and, and here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest. And he said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Think about that. He used his tongue to profess his faith in God. I wonder this evening if there is someone who needs to obey the gospel, who needs to put Christ on in baptism, is willing to stand up and use their words in that way. I hope tonight that we can help you. But I am convinced that most of us here this evening are Christians who have already done that. And we struggle every day with a wild beast. We struggle to tame the untamable. 
to wrestle with the power that exists in our tongue, in our words. So I invite you this evening to examine yourself. If your words have not glorified God, if your words have destroyed and have not built up, if your words have not represented who you claim to be as a Christian, as a representative of God, His Son, and this congregation, then it's time tonight to make it right. Tame your tongue. Obey the gospel and be restored as together we stand and sing.